Today is the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's actually 504th. And I just want to talk to you today. It's not a sermon like an exposition of a text of Scripture, but more informative. Um, I fear that as the days go on, less and less evangelicals actually know what we're talking about when we talk about the Reformation. And so consequently, I've prepared the sermon to help inform us of what the Reformation is and what it means. Like many churches in the world today, we're celebrating Reformation Sunday. And my little joke about Halloween being for pagans, hey, you know, you do what you believe God would have you to do, and happy is a person, blessed is a person that does not condemn themselves and what they allow. Traditions and culture are different in different families, so love one another, okay? And celebrate the Harvest Festival, um, Reformation Sunday, whatever. Uh, Yesterday, my grandchildren participated in a little ritual called Trunk and Treat, so hey, there's all sorts of avenues out there. I don't want any of you to think that... uh, I was pronouncing anathema on you if you get a bag of candy this afternoon. We had the joy, Curtis and I, um, four years ago to go to Wittenberg, Germany, and celebrate the 500th anniversary. That was really a great time. And October 31st, uh, 2017 was the date that we did that, but... um, It's actually 1517 that is the date to remember. It was to commemorate the day that Martin Luther, who was a Catholic month at the time, nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And it was a spark that set aflame a long brewing contention within the Catholic church, specifically that the Reformation would be the protest against the Catholic church its leaders had become corrupt. How can a sinful person ever get right with an all-holy God? That was a question that Luther grappled with. Now, I want to give you just a little overview as we go through this, a short prayer, and then a run-through and an overview. I mean, I could talk on this for weeks and weeks, actually, but I want to give an overview today. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father... We come before you and we know our inadequacy and that we are only adequate by your grace and your strengthening. And so we pray that you would strengthen us with your might uh, for the preaching of the word today, the clarification of what the Reformation is about and why it's important and where we find the doctrine of justification in the Bible, Lord. It is the mainstay, the bedrock of the Reformation was justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. We are so grateful for Martin Luther, who was just a man, but he was a courageous man, and you used him greatly. Thank you for the books that have been written about this time, this period of history, and thank you that we can carry on the tradition of the Reformation at Beacon of Hope Church, Lord. Bless this time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a simple timeline, uh, timeline for Martin Luther, and this is pedantic, okay? I'm teaching today. I'm, I'm not really preaching. Uh, I'll get to preaching a little bit towards the end. But uh, 1483 was when he was born. 
1501, he began studies at law at the University of Erfurt. And 1505, he was caught in a thunderstorm, and he had an experience. And it was at that time that uh, the fear of God struck his heart, and so he moved from Erfurt to the university uh, and from the university to an Augustinian monastery in Erfurt. In 1508, he moved to Wittenberg, where he became a professor at the University of Wittenberg, and he was a professor there, a well-liked professor for over 40 years. In 1511, this man walked to Rome. He walked to Rome, a thousand-mile trek, and along the way, he would stay at monasteries along the way, and he was absolutely overwhelmed by the immorality and corruption that he saw in his church. 1517, the big date, right? October 31st. He was 34 years old. He preached against the selling of indulgences. I'll be talking about what that means and what indulgences were. And on October 31st, he nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg's castle church. Now, that was a document that he had written for scholars and other professors, But what happened was a bunch of students translated it from Latin, uh, the language of scholars, into German, the common language of the people, and they printed the declaration, and it spread like wildfire all over Germany. He didn't intend that to happen. It, It was a kind of a protest amongst the scholars of the day, and it turned out to be a protest much further into the common man. 1521, he was excommunicated and summoned to appear before the Diet of Worms or the Council of Worms, and that's where his famous words were spoken, quote, I neither can nor will recant. Here I stand, I can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. That was before the religious authorities. He challenged authority in a way that would go on to change the course of history, which it indeed did. On his journey back to Wittenberg, he was kidnapped and taken to Wartburg Castle near Eisenach. And uh, in reality, he was actually under the protection of Frederick the Great, who was the founder of the school that he taught at in Wittenberg. And um, it was during that time that he grew his beard really long to kind of Uh, changes his appearance, and he went by the name of Squire George or Junker Jerk. In just 10 weeks during that time, in just 10 weeks, he translated the New Testament from Greek into German. And again, that was revolutionary because the Bible was in the hands of the common people. 1522, he initiated some radical reforms like including public education for all and Encouragement to poets and musicians to write hymns to be sung in the church services. That song that we sang was by Martin Luther, and they didn't sing those hymns in the Catholic Church at that time. They were doing Gregorian chants and so forth. 1523, encouraged nuns and monks to leave the abbeys. It was so corrupt, and his future wife, Katrina Van Bora, was one of the nuns that took leave. And she met Luther in Wittenberg, and shortly thereafter, they were married. He married Katie, and on December 25th of 1525, 
they celebrated the first Protestant worship service. So 1517, 95 Theses, 1525 was the first Protestant worship service as a quote-unquote German mass. Remember, this guy was in the Catholic Church. He was an Augustinian monk. That's eight years after the 95 Theses nailed to the door. And then we go on. In 1533, Klug's songbook was written with hymns like A Mighty Fortress is Our God contained in the songbook. And so hymns were entering into the church at this time. 1546, Luther died, 63 years old, at Eisleben, and his coffin was carried to Wittenberg, where he's buried at the castle church. What a life. Martin Luther, once he finally understood the gospel of grace, he introduced the five sola of the Protestant Reformation. This is imperative that you understand what these are. This is our heritage. This is what we stand on. This is bedrock. Sola means alone. Scriptura, which was the first sola. Sola scriptura. Scriptura means scriptures. This was a cry of the reformers who said that we must go back to the scriptures alone. Get away from the traditions of the church and papal bulls. Out of that came solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And sola deo, gloria, to the glory of God alone. But it all started with sola scriptura. Now, if you've been coming to Beacon of Hope for any time at all, you'll understand that we strongly affirm that sola. The scriptures are sole basis They're our authority for life and for our practice as Christians. The Scriptures alone. It is what birthed the Reformation because the leaders grasped the fact that there was a single authority. This is what all the hubbub was about. A single authority in terms of spiritual world and revelation of God and that that was the Holy Scriptures alone in contrast to what the Roman Catholic Church taught, that there was a dual authority, the authority of the Bible on one hand, but taken with church tradition, okay? The magisterium drawn out of the experiences and councils and the popes. So it's tradition and the word. It's not just the word. The Reformers said it's sola scriptura. So the Reformation... And the reformers were rejecting tradition as a parallel source of divine authority, and they came back to Scripture alone. They returned to something that had been lost. It was that way, but the Roman Catholic Church took it in a different direction. Why did Luther post his 95 Theses in 1517? Okay, John Tetzel of who I'll get into a little bit more, in early 1517 began to sell indulgences near the city of Wittenberg, Germany. And Luther, who was a really popular professor at the university and an Augustinian monk of the Roman Catholic Church, he became incensed because he hated indulgences. He was a very smart, scholarly man. Anybody that can translate the Greek New Testament into German in 10 weeks is not a slouch. And his study of the word was showing up air in the Catholic Church of which he was a part. 
The theses, 95 Theses, was written originally in Latin, meant for scholars, as I mentioned, but those students, those crazy radical students took it and they translated it into the common language. And the recent development of the printing press, which was the social media of the time, they posted it on Facebook, okay? And it went everywhere and it got out of control. It ended up in Luther being excommunicated from the church, called a heretic and everything else. Now, he didn't intend that. He intended it to be a debate amongst the scholars. And those radical students took it and ran with it. You can see that happening. So it spread through Germany and beyond like wildfire. Now there are several ideas that I need to identify to explain and to help us understand why Luther was so concerned about what Tetzel was doing with these indulgences. Listen clearly. Listen clearly. What's an indulgence? Well, the Roman Catholic Church, to this day, it's still doctrine. The Roman Catholic Church claims that Jesus, Mary, and the saints did so many good works in their lifetime that they left behind merit. They left behind merit. And that they didn't need that merit, so they left it behind. And there is a treasury of merit that the Catholic Church believes in. And their merit, their extra merit that they didn't need for their own well-being went into that treasury. The treasury of merit is the possession of the church. The Roman Catholic Church possesses that bank or treasury of merit. And it can be bestowed on others as the church wills to bestow. They can take merit from that church like a bank account. They can take money out of that or merit out of that treasury of merit and bestow it on someone else in the church as they determine they want to do it to. And according to the Roman Catholics, when God forgives, there are some sins for which he remits only the eternal punishment. There is still temporal punishment that must be endured, and if it's not endured in this lifetime, then it must be endured where? Purgatory. Okay, you're linking the pieces together here, right? Through the giving of indulgences, the Roman Catholic Church can shorten that punishment in purgatory or even on earth. Now, you're getting into something here that is still in play within the Catholic Church. Indulgences are the method by which sinners can receive relief from temporal punishment, both in this life, but even more importantly, in the afterlife, in purgatory. Eternal punishment is forgiven in the sacrament of baptism. And if you go to a funeral, you will hear the priest say that the deceased Catholic has received eternal forgiveness through the sacrament of baptism. That's why I no longer go to Catholic funerals. I'll go to the wake. I do not go to the funeral mass anymore. I just can't take it. It just irritates me. It removes original sin, but because the person still sins throughout their life, they build up temporal punishment that could be lessened or purged even in purgatory. That's the great hope. So indulgences granted to a soul are derived from the treasury of merit, which has been built up through Christ, Mary, and saints and martyrs through the centuries that have done exemplary 
good works, and so they have more than enough, and so their merits, their extra merit that they don't need for their own lives goes into the treasury of merit. And then indulgences. Therefore, through indulgences, merit is gained to lessen the punishment of the soul in purgatory. The pope and bishops are able to make use of the merits in the treasury of merit in order to remit the temporal punishment experienced by souls in purgatory. That's a powerful tool, powerful tool that they have in their hands. So what was Tetzel doing? He was selling indulgences. I mean, don't let a good opportunity go to waste, right? He was raising money for himself and for the Catholic Church. First, we know for a fact that half of the money that Tetzel collected went to one of the archbishops in Germany, Albert. Okay? Half of the money he collected for indulgences was to help Albert pay the money he had paid to buy his position as an archbishop to the Pope. No corruption there. The other half went to build and outfit St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. So that's where the money went that Tetzel was going around the countryside selling indulgences. One writer says Tetzel, quote, he sent men before him strangely dressed who stuck up notices throughout the city and along country roads telling of Tetzel's coming and boasting the excellencies of the pardon tickets he would have for sale. Pardon tickets, indulgences, eh? After that came the pardon seller. So first, they send out guys heading out, letting everybody know, hey, a good thing's coming, a good thing's coming, a good thing's coming, pardon tickets are coming, and then the seller of the pardon tickets would follow up maybe a week later. He was an assistant, and after uh, the pardon seller would come in a strong wagon drawn up in uh, the middle of the marketplace of these villages, and then Tetzel would appear. And on one side was an iron cage in which the pardon tickets were hanging from the bars, and on the other side, a strong box into which the money was thrown, and he puffed out his wools like a quack doctor at a country fair. Okay, this is Tetzel. Tetzel was nothing more than a deceitful salesman hawking his product to an already traumatized and superstitious population. Listen to a quote of one of his sermons. This is Tetzel's sermon. Quote, Do you not hear the voice of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy on me because we are in severe punishment and purgatory. From this you could redeem us with small alms and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears as we, the fathers say to the sons and the mother to the daughter. We created you, we fed you, we cared for you and left you are temporal goods. Why are you so cruel and harsh? You do not want to save us, though it takes so little. Wow. And this was to villagers, predominantly illiterate, superstitious. You let us lie in flames so that only slowly do we come to the promised glory in Christ. Can you see why Luther was incensed? Tetzel played on the emotions of the predominantly illiterate masses, and he coerced money from them by such a horrible plea to their emotions. Luther loathed that. He just loathed it. And Tetzel had a little ditty. He said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. 
And when he came close to Wittenberg, Luther couldn't take it anymore, and that's what stimulated the writing of the 95 Theses. If you read the 95 Theses, you'll see that it's got everything to do with, with indulgences. Okay? It was not a sensational event, the 95 Theses, as we might think today, but it was the spark that set everything off. And so 504 years ago today, October 31st, 1517, Luther ignited a spark that would change the world forever. It's called the, the Protestant Reformation. Protestant means protest. Now, how did the dispute and justification arise? Because this is woven in the 95 Theses, but it was only later that this became the rallying point for Luther. It's important to understand the 95 Theses was all about indulgences, but Luther's, by his own confession, he did not come to a clear understanding of justification by faith alone until later. Until later. But the Protestant Reformation was already uh, about justification by faith alone. So we could say the quest to recover the faith once for all delivered to the saints in the Scriptures was really what was driving this Reformation. It really was a return to truth, long obscured and forgotten by the church, and which I might add today, we need to return to truth, to truth, the Word of God. It was not about discovery. They weren't discovering the truth. They held the truth. They had the truth in the Scriptures, but it was a recovery of that truth. Now, Here's a summary of Protestant beliefs. The recovered truth of the Reformation is summed up today in the five sola of the Reformation. That's why I said the sola are very, very important for us to understand. Number one, sola scriptura. It's the ultimate authority is not in tradition or popes or councils, but in scripture alone. Incidentally, when Luther was at the Diet of Worms, he defended himself only by the scriptures. He did not refer to confessions. He didn't refer to any documents from the church or any traditions or any papal bulls. He referred only to the scriptures to defend himself. Number two, solus Christus. God justifies sinners not based on their own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Number three, sola fide. God justifies sinners not because of any human works or merit, bought through indulgences or performed on our own behalf, but by faith alone in Christ alone. Number four, sola gratia. Sinners are saved from the wrath of God, not by any personal merit or from their own initiative, but by sovereign grace alone, the grace of God, undeserved favor by God through Jesus Christ. And then sola dea gloria. The redemption from God is delivered in such a way that sinners receive none of the glory. We have nothing to boast of, Ephesians 2.10, right? But all glory goes to God alone. If it's only by grace alone, which is an unmerited favor that God bestows upon us in our salvation, then we have nothing to glory in. Only God gets the glory. So that's what makes Protestants different from Roman Catholics. Okay? 
Yet, in a recent poll conducted by the Pew Research Center, we hear that of those who claim to be Protestant in the U.S., including evangelicals, all the way to theologically liberal denominations, they were polled. Listen to these figures. 52% say Christians should look to the Bible and church's official teachings and traditions for truth. The Bible plus something else. No longer sola scriptura. Also, 52% also say that both good deeds and faith are needed to get into heaven. Now, this is including evangelicals that were polled. Only 30% of those claiming to be Protestants now believe in sola scriptura and sola fide. Only 30%. This is a huge problem. So a full 70% of those claiming to be Protestant in the U.S. now affirm Roman Catholic doctrine. 70% see no difference between Catholics and Protestants. I pronounce anathema on that. (laughs) That is horrible, and yet it's present. Now, justification by faith is the heart of the Reformation. Let me talk about this just a bit. Luther's anguish, even as a devout Catholic monk, all centered on how he, as a sinner, could ever be right with God, who is an all-holy, righteous God. The justice of God demands that the sinner suffer eternal condemnation, and the holiness of God ensures that judgment to take place. This he knew from Catholic teaching. This he knew from the Bible, which he read. Luther suffered under an almost unbearable dread of the coming of judgment but God opened his heart and his eyes to the true meaning of Romans 1.17. Quote, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man will live by faith. Now initially, Luther misunderstood that verse because of the erroneous teaching he received from the Catholic Church. His initial pre-salvation understanding of that verse scared him to death. That's what he was so fearful about. This is him talking. Quote, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to Romans. But up until then, it was a single word in chapter 1, verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that it stood in my way. For I hated that word righteousness of God. (laughs) This is Luther being honest, being vulnerable, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers that I had been acquainted with and I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and so he punishes the unrighteous sinner. Because God is righteous. His righteousness demands he punishes sinners. That's why he hated that word righteousness of God. Because it spelt punishment for him because he knew he was a sinner. He goes on, though I lived as a monk without reproach. He used to self-flagellate himself. He would um, not sleep with any, any blankets in cold cells, trying to do penance, trying to figure out How could he pay for his sin somehow? He says, I lived as a monk without reproach. I felt that I was a sinner before God and an extremely disturbed conscience. 
I could not believe that he was placated by my, satis- uh, by my satisfaction. So what he's saying is he couldn't believe that everything that he was doing would gain satisfaction with God somehow. So his conscience was really disturbed. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmured greatly. I was angry with God and I said, as if, indeed, it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel. That's his interpretation of the gospel. It brought him pain. And also by the gospel threatening us with righteous wrath, the righteousness of God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, Romans 1.17 most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. What was he talking about? So he was right zeroed in at the right target, the righteousness of God, but he misunderstood it because of false teaching of the Catholic Church. The best place for us to get an understanding of what the Roman Catholic Church believes and teaches about justification is to go back to their recorded response to the Reformer's understanding of justification at the Council of Trent. This is the Catholic Church's rebuttal to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. They hold that justification occurs in three stages. This is Catholic doctrine. It's taught today. Number one, preparation. Justification in three stages. Uh, The Protestant would believe that justification takes place in a moment of time when a, a sinner is justified and declared righteous by God. Catholic Church says there's preparation. In adults at repentance, faith, and the intention to be baptized, all just is preparation and not settled justification. It's not settled justification. It's just the first step. Step two, beginnings. Baptism is a beginning because at baptism, God infuses grace whereby an unjust man actually becomes just, not justified, but just, and you become virtuous You become righteous, but this is just the beginning. It's still not settled justification. You've entered the path towards a settled justification. And then three is the increase. This happens only by obedience and good works through the observance of the commandments of God and the church, faith cooperating with good works. Believers may increase in their righteousness received through the grace of Christ, and then be further justified, but still not settled justification. Because that would be the sin of presumption that you actually have experienced salvation. As a Roman Catholic, you cannot declare that you are justified. You cannot declare that you are saved, if you will. The summary statement by the Roman Catholics regarding the Reformers' view on justification is contained in the anathema, at the Council of Trent. Listen to this. This is a a pronouncement that the Catholic Church made concerning justification by faith as Protestants believe it. If anyone says the righteousness received in justification is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, 
exactly what the Bible teaches. But not the cause of its increase, let that person be anathema, accursed. Accursed. So to believe in justification by faith, you are anathema, according to the Roman Catholic Church. Justification, according to Roman Catholic teaching, is a process, not something that takes place at a precise moment in time. And here is the Bible's teaching on justification and the role of good works. So that was the Roman Catholic teaching. Here is the scriptural teaching on it. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll see the legal basis for justification. Justification describes what God declares about the believer, not what he does to change the believer. It's important. It teaches us what God declares, what God states about the believer. It's not an impartation of anything to the believer, but rather it is a declaration an instantaneous change of the person's status before God. Okay? This is so important, people, to understand this. And I know this is doctrine, but it is Doctrine 101. You need to understand that this is basic. You must grasp this. Marriage is an example of justification by faith, that declaration that God makes upon our recognition and submission to him and faith in Jesus Christ. In marriage, the marriage ceremony, and I've done many of them, I say at one point, by the power invested in me, I now declare you man and wife. They were just two individuals a moment before, but now they are husband and wife. What changed? Nothing. Just my declaration by the authority that's invested in me, I declare you to be husband and wife. That's what God does to the sinner. He declares them to be righteous through the work of Jesus Christ, his son. Look at Romans 5.19. For as through the one man's disobedience, that would be Adam, the many were made sinners, and even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Through one man's disobedience, some were made sinners. And that means that they were constituted sinners. It doesn't mean that God made them evil, made them sinners. It means rather that God sees them in the category of sinners, and so he treats them as such. And that's because of the sin of Adam, original sin, if you want to say. It follows us from parent to parent to child all the way through, original sin. And Romans 5.19, it says, but through the obedience of the one, through Jesus' perfect and sinless life of obedience, And through the culmination of that life of obedience, he was obedient even to death on the cross. The many, through his obedience, the many here, many has the meaning of those who are legally represented, those who have received and believed in him, and those who will believe in him, not all, but the many. Look at verse 15, and look at the last part of the verse. It says, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounds to the many. That's not to everyone. That's to the many. And the reason I say it's not to everyone, look down at verse 17, and we'll see uh, the second part of the verse. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, 
much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So you have the many being used here in two different ways. Um, Through Adam, the many, through the disobedience of one, the many are separate from God and under the wrath of God. Okay, the reason I know that is because Romans 3.23, or yeah, 6.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone that's born into this world, man, every single one of us is born separate from God. That's original sin. It's because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. But some, or the many, who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross on their behalf as a substitute for them, that's the many who are saved then and declared righteous. Okay? It's those who receive the abundance of the grace and of the gift of righteousness that will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. They're made righteous. Again, this does not mean that he actually instills virtue in them. He's talking again about how God now sees them in the category of the righteous. That's why, that's why we still struggle with sanctification. We, when we believed we were made righteous, but that doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. Okay? We still struggle with sin, and we're still being transformed from glory to glory, from one phase to another phase, ever more into the image of Jesus Christ. It's called sanctification. Because when we're declared righteous, that doesn't mean that anything has changed. We've just been declared we're in a different category now, and God sees us as righteous because of his son. Think of it like a judge passing sentence on a guilty person standing before him. And he says, you're acquitted. You're acquitted. Okay, well, the guilty one still committed the crime. He was guilty, but the judge declared him righteous. You're acquitted. And now he's free, and he doesn't have to suffer the judgment for the crime which he committed because the judge declared him acquitted. That's what God does in justification. When we humbly come before God and admit that we're sinful, that we sinned and basically are separate from him because of it, and his wrath abides on us because of our sinfulness, and we say, save us, save me, help me, come to my rescue. He does. And the way he does it, he declares us righteous at that point. But then we have a whole lifetime of transformation that takes place from glory to glory. But we're declared righteous. It's like getting on that school bus. You will get to school. You will get to heaven because of the declaration of God. God declares all such to be righteous based on Jesus Christ, and it's appropriated by faith alone. God's justifying decision is the judgment of the last day, one writer writes. I like this a lot. Declaring where we will spend eternity, brought forward into the present and pronounced here and now. So what he's saying is all who have humbled themselves before God and confessed that they're sinners and separate from him because of their sin and have asked him to save them, they've faced their final day of judgment. That's it. That's like the last judgment day for them. 
They'll never face judgment again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Wow. Yeah. Why should we ever be sad, beloved? Why? It's all taken care of. It's finished. It's the last judgment that will ever be passed on our destiny. God will never go back on it. However much Satan appeals against God's verdict, to be justified is to be eternally secure because we didn't do nothing. We received something. That's why he's a savior. We didn't do anything. He saved us. We need somebody outside of ourselves. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, which we talked about when we were going through Philippians, Paul counted everything that was of value in his life as loss. And in verse 8, he uses the most polite Greek word possible for excrement, scubalon, scubalon, garbage, refuse. Paul said that because he wanted to make clear that there was absolutely nothing within him or his achievements that brought about the righteousness of God in his life. And then in verse 9, um, Philippians 3.9, he settles it. He says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He kept the law. He didn't want any credit given to him, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Wow. And so it was with Luther when he rediscovered the only truth that really matters in the Bible, because it's, it, it sets everything right again. Every, everything sin messed up can all be made right once again. Listen to Luther's own words. This is just so beautiful. At last, by the mercy of God, mediating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. <laughs> he finally figured out what they meant. Namely, In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness not like the Roman church taught him, the act of righteousness, which was punishment and the wrath of God, punished out or meted out to sinners. But the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here, a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the Scriptures from memory, and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the words righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me in truth the gate to paradise. The very thing that he hated, the righteousness of God, became the gate of paradise to him. Now, I know that in our day and age, talking about, you know, the, uh, the righteousness of God and, and gates of paradise and all this stuff, listen, all I'm telling you, you know if you're a sinner or not. The Scriptures say that 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that leaves none of us out of it. So it's between you and God. But the truth of the matter is, uh, turn your Bibles real quickly to 2 Corinthians. Just one more note on, on justification. It's so beautiful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The great exchange. In this, Paul writes, He made him who knew no sin, that would be Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're relying on even the smallest thought of giving heaven and that it'll be based on something that you have done or something that you have to do, your hope is not based absolutely on Jesus Christ and what he did and his sacrificial death on the cross for you. You are not a real Christian. I'm telling you straight. That's my job. If you're trusting on anything that you're doing, coming to church on Sunday, I don't make it all the time like I should. I feel bad about that. But, you know, God looks down on me. I know he knows my heart, and I'm really wanting to. And you're thinking that he's going to think of you better because you come to church. You're not a real Christian. You're a real Christian when you realize there's nothing that you could possibly do. Not even if you could walk all the way to Rome from here on your knees would you gain merit with God enough to be saved? Because that would be an affront to God because he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him as a savior, that's how you are saved. That's how you are justified. Not by anything that you would do yourself. You see, the reformer's position on justification was this. Our right standing before God has absolutely nothing to do with our own righteousness Nothing to do with our own good works. In fact, Luther stressed that our righteousness is an alien righteousness from God. The righteousness that saves is outside of ourselves. It's objective. It's something God bestows upon us by declaration. It's an alien righteousness because it comes from without, completely outside of us, belongs wholly to another. And can you see how Christ alone would come into play here? And sola, uh, solus deo gloria, God only gets the glory. You see how these all fit together, the sola? It's just beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's all summed up in those five sola. Oh, man. Think of it in this way. And don't lean to what you do or what you don't do. Like what you don't do is going to get you punished by God. What you do is going to get you reward by God. And Christian, I'm talking to you too. Some of us who are believers and have been believers for a long time, we live under this incredible pressure that God's just waiting to lower the boom on us. Just waiting. He's got his rod, man, and he's just, he's just sitting there waiting for you to blow it so he can spank you. <laughs> it's not the God of the Bible. He doesn't operate. That is not his character. The one that gave his only begotten son so that we might have salvation? Wow. No, he wants our best. He wants good for us. And he gave us the Holy Spirit and the word of God so that we can move towards that good that brings him great glory and us marvelous joy. So that's my little... Talk on the Reformation, Um, each one of those solas could take at least a week or two, 
but we just did an overview to help you to understand why it's so important. And uh, I really encourage you to get books on the Sola, get books on Martin Luther, find out what it's all about. Those of you that struggle with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, the will, um, get the book by Martin Luther called Bondage of the Will. That'll rock your world. It really will. And it was written a long time ago. But that's where he really extols the fact that it's, it's only God. It's only God that does the work of salvation. So let's close in prayer and go to communion. Our gracious Heavenly Father, forgive me for just uh, rushing through these things that are so precious, so filled, so deep, so rich. And Father, I pray that the salient points will have been gotten across, that you would have driven them home by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, uh, we just uh, commit our lives into your hands. We are forever, forever indebted to you for what you've done on our behalf. And Lord, help us not to mess it up. Help us not to think of you in a way that is not commensurate with Scripture, to think of your character as being an ogre rather than a loving, merciful, incredible God. Help us to just cast those thoughts away and let us study who you truly are according to your word and your self-revelation. We commit all this into your hands now in Jesus' name. Amen.